Welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian, filling in for Dave Robson. He's uh, feeling a little under the weather. And I'm in studio with our senior pastor, Scott Richards, and our one of our co-pastors, uh, Sean Richards. Hello, gents. Hello. Gents. Nicest thing I've been called all day. <laughs> <laughs> I've been on the Could internet. Could do tonight. worse. <laughs> well, this is a weekly weekday Bible answer program where we take questions from you the audience listening in live stream some listen on the radio after the fact but uh, if you join us live online you can actually uh, ask questions uh, we we take questions about the Christian faith about the Bible about the Christian worldview is Christianity true is it reasonable is there good reasons for believing that life is more than what we see here taste touch and smell does God exist Did Jesus really exist and did he do and say and uh, <laughs> change the world in the way that uh, history seems to indicate. So those questions and many, many more you can ask us. We'd really appreciate you to joining us. Um, you can do this in multiple ways. You can, of course, join us on uh, Facebook. That's where we primarily started our live stream. Go to Facebook.com and our handle is CCF Tucson, or you can just search for our church. We live stream from our church here in Tucson, Arizona, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. You can also uh, check us out on YouTube. Our YouTube handle, you can just look for A Reason for Hope, or you can go to youtube.com at A Reason for Hope 546. Now, if you don't want to follow along on social media platforms, you can also uh, check us out on our website. If you go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, and just hit the Watch Live tab, you can actually catch not just this program, but all of our services. We do a Wednesday night Oasis service. We're currently going through the book of Ezekiel, and you can catch our services on Sunday mornings at uh, 8, 9.30, and 11, and we live stream those. We're currently going through the book of Acts. We are a church that teaches uh, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We have an archive of almost the entire Bible, so if you want to go to our website and check out our archives, you can do that, and uh, <clears throat> it's quite, uh, quite interesting. So if you do go to our website, um, you can just hit that, like I said, watch live tab there, and watch it live th that way. Um, also, we have a, a uh, app that you can download. Um, if you're a part of our community and you would like to download it from the Apple or Google Play Store, you can do so. And uh, we'd encourage you to do that because we have a really amazing app that has uh, all our calendar of events, a digital Bible where you can highlight texts, uh, leave notes, you can join chat groups, and so much more. And of course, you can watch the live stream you can watch our services, you can go into our archives and so on, so I'd encourage you to check that out. We also have a way for you to ask questions of this program, A Reason for Hope, by email. If you want to leave a question a little more discreetly, just let us know by emailing us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. We also have an archive on Rumble, so if you go to rumble.com and search for A Reason for Hope, we're archiving this program there so if you missed an episode or if you have a particular question that you want to look up and you can't seem to find it on our YouTube channel or on our Facebook page you can go to rumble and all our programs are categorized by the three top questions asked so you can do that as well and finally uh, if you want to follow our senior pastor on X <laughs> the screenshot I have is a little old there is the bird and we're gonna keep it there for nostalgic sake but uh, you can uh, follow Pastor Scott on there, and his X handle is at Scott R4H. That's at Scott R4H. And uh, with that being said, before we start taking questions from the audience, we'll take a moment to 
pray and ask the Lord to be with us. Okay, sounds good. Sean, would you do that for us? Okay. Dad, thank you that we have the honor of being here. We know that we don't have anything to offer apart from what you freely give to us. So fill my Father and I with your Holy Spirit and allow you to share not only what you intend your people to hear, but also that our hearts would be blessed as the first fruits and receivers of your written word. Thank you that we have the honor of being a part of this process, and we ask that you would be the reason why it means anything. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, any updates? Any well, I, I'd like to, to uh, start our broadcast by uh, one of the more challenging questions that got uh, sent along to us. This uh, was on our Twitter feed uh, that uh, you can join, as, as uh, we've mentioned. Uh, a uh, skeptic uh, posted a snarky little graphic uh, about uh, hints and hacks for finding a wife biblically. And it basically said that you need to find a girl and rape her and then she will be forced to be your wife for the rest of her life. Uh, they said that oh, that uh, okay. was a quote from, okay. uh, from Deuteronomy chapter yeah. 22. And, uh, you know, I just thought that is one of those, uh, well, in a sense, red herring uh, sort of uh, objections uh, that we often hear, that uh, Deuteronomy chapter 22 is, uh, you know, patently anti-women and pro-rape. Uh, because after all, here is uh, the scripture. It says, if a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and rapes her and they are discovered, he shall pay his, her father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the young woman, for he has violated her. He can never divorce her as long as he lives. So we have right off the bat a, um, a lightning rod uh, for skeptics and people that would say that the Bible is this horrible Bronze Age uh, barbaric document and what a terrible thing that the only thing that you have to do if your daughter is uh, raped is receive some kind of fine and then consigned to live with a rapist the rest of her life. There's one uh, minor problem with all of this. Uh, that translation, uh, the New International Virgin, Version that translates this word in Deuteronomy chapter 22, rape, uh, has some problems uh, with that as far as the language goes. But, but Sean, you're in the front lines, you're in the trenches as far as dealing with skeptics. I mean, you actually go and seek to engage them. How many times have you been asked this question and how do you respond to it? Dozens and almost half as much because if I'm going to answer a question, I first have to make sure they're listening to the response. And if there's a colorful language peppered throughout the conversation, then I usually just determine that person's hurling profanity, not actually asking a question, and why answer a question that's not being asked. But when it comes to those who are genuinely concerned about this, and rightly so, if we determine God's nature through this laying down of the law, this revelation of his character to the nation of Israel, right. and he seems to be okay with someone seizing a woman as a means of bagging her, like some bizarre callback to the, uh, I guess, so old Disney days before they were able to censor their own platform and material. What is the difference between the pagan cultures that undoubtedly did this, that we have records of doing this in times of war and peace, and the Hebrew nation that was, of course, in existence before and during these times where that was the norm? And, and the answer to that question is absolutely none. 
Yeah, because you only have to go back maybe four verses to find out there is an, in fact, instance of rape where that's judged with the death penalty towards yeah. the man and not the woman. Yeah, you know, and, and so to unravel this uh, a little bit, uh, you know, let me jump in uh, with a little bit of linguistics as far as this is concerned. This is one of those times where you've really got to be careful with what Bible translation uh, you use. Uh, because the New International Version, uh, sometimes called the Nearly Inspired Version by some of its critics, is, uh, you know, it's fine as far as a version of the Bible that you might be able to read uh, a lot of in, a, in one setting, but it falls into the category we would call of dynamic equivalence. Uh, that is, uh, it is not uh, a word-for-word translation of the Bible. The problem with dynamic equivalence is you end up sometimes with less translation and more of a commentary, more of what a translator might think is being said here, rather than just what the word has to say. So, you know, in this case, I think uh, we really need to take that to heart because the word translated rape here uh, can mean an awful lot of other things. The Hebrew word simply means to take hold of something, to grasp it in hand. Uh, it can mean to capture or seize something. It's a word that is used in other contexts of, say, handling a harp or a flute or a sword or a sickle or a, or a shield or the, the oars of a boat or even a bow and arrow. It's likewise in another context used for taking God's name or dealing with the law of God. Uh, it is the word that was used to describe what happened when Joseph's garment was grasped by Potiphar's wife. Uh, it is also uh, one that is used to describe Moses taking uh, the two tablets of the law. Now, there's nothing sexual about any of those other things. So, uh, you know, when we see this particular translation, we can say, well, uh, these translators probably know more than you. Why should I listen to you rather than these translators on this key issue? Well, uh, once again, uh, context is absolutely key in this set of circumstances. For instance, uh, it's really important to see uh, the parallel passage that we find in the book of Exodus that also speaks to this issue. It says this, If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price price for virgins. Now, these two passages deal with the same situation. A man sleeps with a virgin who is not betrothed. In other words, not his wife, uh, someone who has not been married yet. In fact, in Exodus 22, uh, not a single hint of force or rape comes into this particular situation. Basically, uh, if seduction takes place, so a woman of marriageable age is seduced by someone else, uh, you know, one of those uh, individuals, I guess, who would be, uh, used to be known as walkaway Joes, uh, just looking for a good time and moving on. Well, uh, what would happen was that person would have to man up. He would have to uh, essentially pay the dowry price that this uh, woman would have received, uh, the family would have received for her marriage under optimal circumstances, and he would have to marry the woman. 
under the approval of the father. Right. Which is another layer where you have to, if you're the skeptic, attribute motive and malice and sheer hatred of a parent towards his daughter. Because if the circumstances of that sexual compromise were forceful, first of all, if that were to happen to your daughter, my sister, you'd probably turn off all the cameras and leave me alone in a room with him for a while and see what's left. The second thing that we need to keep in mind is when we're talking about this issue, it's not only repeated verbatim in the passage of Deuteronomy they're quoting, but they're counting on you not reading anything more than what they're handing to you right. from a very that is so key and yeah. that's a very specific translation that is alone in its presentation of that word as rape now there's other passages say for example in the book of numbers in the event of the midianites where you could read into the text that these people were raped but it doesn't actually say the word and you can go back four chapters or so to find out why the women were spared and the young women or the young women were spared the old women who had known a man sexually were executed why that took place you can go again like you referenced to exodus and note that there are distinctions between the and the Bible recognized this, by the way, of how people will interact with one another sexually and that the violations therein do different penalties to them. And there's also the way that these things are oftentimes misrepresented in saying, well, it says seize. The only way that could be understood would be taking someone captive. Well, if that's the case, then Exodus chapter 21 and verse 16 notes, if man kidnaps a man and sells him or is found in his hand, he shall be put to death. So that's out, unless, of course, you're going to miss the whole point of why these are one cohesive book with the same author. Now, what's also interesting about this is that if we're going to start in verse 13, go all the way to verse 30, and note these different scenarios, like I mentioned before, they're not going to do that. They're counting on you not wanting to do that. And one passage, a few verses back, is absolutely key, where the actual technical Hebrew word for rape is used, and what is the uh, remedy for an individual who has been found guilty of rape in this passage? Verse 25 of, again, Deuteronomy 22, if a man finds a betrothed young woman in the countryside, the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die, but you shall do nothing to the young woman. There is in the young woman no sin deserving of death. For just as when a man raises, uh, arises against his neighbor and kills him, even so in this matter, the Bible, two verses prior, compares rape to murder. So here we see that using this idea of rape in this context, saying that the only penalty for rape is that the guy's got to pay the dowry price and live with a woman forever, Uh, is a non-starter. First of all, because there is a perfectly good word that is translated rape uh, a couple verses back. And secondly, the penalty for anybody that was found guilty of rape was death. Not a dowry, but death. So uh, when someone says this sort of thing, you know, I guess this is uh, what what I I see, especially in uh, these increasingly Bible hostile, dare I say, Bible phobic days? Sure. Is that is that a legitimate word? People are Bible phobic. 
Bible phobia. Well, that would assume consistency. <laughs> yeah. No, they get these things from big names in the internet. Paul Loggia, Matt Dillahunty, um, what's his name, uh, Aaron Raw, and plenty of others. They have demonstrated time and time again, they have no problem lying. They have no problem contradicting themselves. They have no problem in public manipulating their audiences to simply share an emotion about Christianity in particular by any means necessary. And to the best of assumptions about people who would share these internet memes, they are passing on the information of people. You can accuse of lying, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the atheist is responsible for this. They share an emotion, they share an experience, they share a negative association against Christianity that causes them to want to say, I don't want anything to do with this Bible stuff, and giving me another excuse is all the better for it. But here's the problem. When God will hold people to account for the things they've said and done, the people who do the lying and the people who perpetrate the lie are both not handling the truth. Our opportunity is to show chapter and verse, to care enough about the truth, to show where and when these simply don't line up with reality. And in this situation, like 80% of the other quote-unquote Bible issues that you're going to hear, especially in this day and age, but since the 1800s, in fact, all you have to do is say where and when. All you have to do is go to the passage that they may or may not even know how to spell properly, because... As you know, in atheist comments, these things rarely observe basic phonics and diction, but that's just a humorous aside. Go to the passage, read not just the whole chapter, maybe the whole conversation, and ask good questions. Well, obviously, verse 25 is talking about that. It says, forces her and lies with her. You can even use the NIV if you want. But then you go down and note, why is it that this is a separate sentence? from that kind of situation? Is the Bible being redundant, or do you think, like in any other form of communication, this is a different situation? In a legal document, you have this situation, you have this situation. You're making them out to be two situations, or one situation, when they're two separate conversations. What's the real issue here? The issue isn't what the Bible says, it's the emotional vitriol of the people reading it. And if you're talking to, like I said, half of the people that oftentimes are going to bring this up, you don't need to waste your time talking back to them because they're not even giving you that same respect. They're talking at you, not to you. And if someone isn't going to offer you an ear, you're not owed to give them one either. But if on the other hand, you can maybe forgive the language associated with this because, again, I think everyone here in this room, anti-rape, uh, we, we just want to yeah. say that on camera. Yeah. We are against the concept of forcing and, someone. And I'm kind of in agreement with the penalty. Yeah, this I would. dark <laughs> Bronze Age version of penalties. Uh, yeah. Sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> well, uh, you saw my uh, not-so-subtle hint about what I'd do to a guy who'd raise a hand against my sister, but we'll just let that slide in the realm of imagination. The point being made is this. If someone is willing to listen, do them a favor and offer them an ear first. If you take the time to listen to them, take their words seriously enough, even if they don't ring necessarily right to you, and go, you know, that is horrible. You can answer honestly, even in the face of their straw man, and say, that sounds bad. Can I look this up and get back to you on it? Or maybe you've listened to this broadcast enough, or you've had those kind of conversations as often as I have, and gone, 
there's just one thing about this that bothers me <laughs> and go to the passage Columbo style. Those are the best ways to handle these kind of Bible difficulties because they just aren't that creative. And when it ultimately comes down to it, you offer facts, they offer anger. That's not the kind of person you want to talk to. If you offer facts and they at least stop screaming, then you, I think, are getting somewhere. But also note as well, and Dad, you can bear testimony to this, oftentimes the people who invoke, uh, involve, invoke, invest, I think was the word I was looking for, the most emotion against the things of the gospel, oftentimes they're doing so because they've had a few sleepless nights where the Holy Spirit's been a bit rough with them. Am yeah. I wrong in that? Yeah. Well, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. Uh, if someone, you know, say for instance, uh, had a conviction that there's no such thing as the Easter Bunny and that, um, you know, it's just tragic that uh, exploitative uh, companies like the Reese's Company make lots of money selling Easter eggs to gullible individuals, right? Um, I've never seen anybody go online and devote themselves to an entire day saying, I must disabuse people of this awful idea of this huge mutant rabbit that, that, that causes them to buy all of these candies that are rotting their teeth. Imagine the damage to the dentistry alone. Uh, if someone did that, you'd probably either say, lighten up, Francis, or, you know, maybe you need to cut back on the caffeine, or have you considered counseling? So to wake up in the morning and say, okay, what am I going to do with my day? I know I'm going to go online and I'm going to make fun of the other people's deeply held beliefs, even if you don't share them. You know, <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I could uh, go online and go to, uh, you know, Mormons.com or uh, name your website and spend all that time devoting myself to mocking the idea that Joseph Smith was a prophet, which I could probably do with a lot of historical information. But I don't believe it. You know, I don't devote really any time or thought to it. I don't believe the Easter Bunny exists. I don't devote any time or thought or emotional energy to that. So why is it so different when the subject of God comes up? Mm. Could it be that, like Romans chapter 1 says, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in ungodliness. Now, the idea of suppressing the truth is an active uh, sort of thing. It's not just a passive thing. Like, oh, I'm just not buying this God stuff. I'm going to move on. It carries the idea of like stuffing something in a box, mm -hmm. shoving it down, and sitting on the box. Why? Because the Word of God is living and active. So it's not passive agnosticism. No. We're talking about active anti-suppression mm. yeah and even if you get into the passive aggressive idea of agnosticism well i just don't know well the obvious question is would you like to know i mean i, I can't think of any other discipline in this world where not uh, having a conviction on a certain subject was counted as a virtue but mm -hmm. agnosticism seems to have been raised to sort of an intellectual height you should just they're very theophobic Yep. Or Christophobic. Yep. Well, it's that Christophobia, uh, bi uh, bibliophobic, phobic? I don't know. Sure. Yeah. So, you that know, works for me. <laughs> uh, make them play by their own rules. You know? Yeah. And, and I think one of the world. most uh, key piercing questions to get back to what you said, Sean, that you can never ask for an atheist who's frothing at the mouth is, wow, you really seem angry about all of this. 
you know, tell me, has there been somebody that like represented God or Christian things that has done you wrong in the past? Because usually that's what's going on there. Or they can prove their insincerity mm -hmm. by saying, I'm quite calm. You're the one being angry. And yeah. you can pretty much just say, I wash my hands of this weirdness. Yeah, I noticed the calmness in the, uh, the redness of your face and the veins bulging out of your forehead. Uh, so, you know, ask him the question. Uh, let's face it, every conversion to Christianity is a miracle. The natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God, nor can he, for they are spiritually discerned. God has to open their eyes to the truth. Our responsibility is to share it, to speak it in love, to bathe that sharing in prayer, and leave the results to God. Mm. You know, people say, how many people you saved in your ministry? And say, none. <laughs> the only person I know who saves people is Jesus. I can point you to him. But, uh, you know, we, we've got to be very, very uh, careful uh, about pointing people to the person of Jesus Christ and letting the Holy Spirit do the work. So, anyway, so uh, another, another little glimpse into the uh, wide uh, world of our Twitter feed. For those who may not have studied this chapter and, and looked at it in different translations, what would your advice be? First, uh, a real brief explanation of the difference between a word-for-word -word wooden literal translation and a dynamic equivalence and those, those, spec those polar opposites and everything in between. Uh, because if someone were to see that meme and go, is that really what it says? And looks it up and goes, that's what it says. Which nine times out of ten they aren't even going to do. They're just going to say, that's what it says. Yeah, exactly. And I just thought for the fun of it, I'd look at the New King James. And one says, the one you mentioned above, says forces. And then the latter verse says just lies with her. So right. it seems like there right. was a, it's not the same word. Well, they, different translators yeah. wrestle with it in a different way. Yeah, well, again, there there is a distinct technical word for uh, a sexual assault, for a rape. And it's used, and it's used in the chapter. Specifically in that mm -hmm. chapter with the specific consequence of the rapist being executed as a result. So it's very yeah. clear from the nature of the penalty and the use of the distinct word in context. You're talking about two different things. So even if they were to read it in the NIV, they should, even from the context, get, wait a minute, there is something. This guy did it, and he gets killed. Was it just because she was engaged and the latter was not? Or is there something true. more? And, and so, yeah, I can see how um, someone might get thrown off a little bit by that. And would you encourage people to always study the Bible with multiple translations in front of them if they really want to? answer a meme like that <laughs> only if it's a problem passage i'd say and this is true for me it's probably going to be true for you as well the only reason that well you went to seminary but the only reason i know so much about this topic is because i've been put in a situation where i've looked foolish about it too many times for me to want it to happen again mm. i've been willing to look foolish in my younger years so that now you all get the benefit of my intense motivation to actually want to be able to give a reason for the hope that is within me. Some people are too scared to even go that far, to put themselves in a situation where they may not know the answer and have to look it up, to need to look it up, to at mm -hmm. all cost need to give an answer. And the reality is that's equipping you for ministry. If we're not willing to, it's like voluntary growing pains, mm. undergo those things, then we can't complain 10 years down the line when we still find ourselves five foot five in the spiritual race. So here's the point, and note the illustration, but the point is that when you're talking to people, make sure that you're talking to a person, not a slogan machine. 
make sure that when you call them out on something that you hold them to conversations you've already had to make sure that you're listening and they're listening because oftentimes we need to be just as gracious as we expect others to be but if they're not willing to return that hold them to it a great book on this conversational approach is Craig Kokel's tactics book. Uh, the second edition came out a few years ago. But when we're put in this situation of translation issues, most people aren't even aware of that. They think, well, if the King James English was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations, yeah. you don't know anything. Yeah. That's not a fault, but it's certainly not a virtue either. When you're put in a situation where facts matter, where you see the word, your Bible says this, and then you say, that's weird because another Bible words that differently. See, your own Bible can't keep the story straight. Mm. Okay, why is that? Because it's coming from one Greek text, one Hebrew text. And interestingly enough, that's pretty consistent on the topic. Why do you think this word is rendered that way? Mm -hmm. Now, we can have these shower thoughts and imaginary conversations all day, and it's not going to get anyone saved, let alone convinced that there is, in fact, more to the Bible than these memes. But yeah. the point being made is this. There are unreasonable people. There are teachable people. Mm. The, the latter are very rare but easy to spot with just two questions. Where and when, and would you care? That's all you have to do. Mm. You don't have to bring up multiple translations that may come up later on, but you don't even have to necessarily go beyond what they've already talked about. Just say, it says this. I assume you read two verses earlier. Yeah, even the New American Standard, which is considered a more wooden word-for-word -word translation, uses the word rape on the passage above where the penalty is death. Right. And says, sleeps with her. It just says sexual relations. It yeah. has sexual relations with her. So it seems like one is uh, consensual and one is not. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, as you know, the Liv New Living Translation, for instance, uh, probably comes closest to the law's uh, original intent. It says, suppose a man has intercourse with a young woman who's a virgin but is not engaged to be married. If they're discovered, he must pay her father 50 pieces of silver. Then he must marry the young woman because he violated her and he may never divorce her as long as he lives. Very clear. So... You break it, you buy it. Yeah, exactly. Well, Which you have to understand the context too. Isn't it true that if a woman was not a virgin, she was literally unmarriable? And then it would depends. depend on would depend on the man to provide. So that dowry was her basically retirement fund. It was like a almost a it was a huge amount of wages. Yeah. And it was her way of living if her husband were to die. Yeah. And so he's having to pay that no matter what. And then if the parents approve, not only that, you have to marry her and take care of her because you've now soiled a virgin yeah doctor, well, and it even talks about how you have to do the same thing if you accuse her of unfaithfulness when you didn't and it has mm -hmm. the same penalty yeah mm -hmm. dr sandra richter uh, said this in deuteronomy victims of sexual misconduct were constitutionally protected from the economic consequences of assault and seduction walk away joes her term were required to man up the young woman was shielded from the economic and social fallout of the encounter Rape victims were assumed innocent. Women so abused were expected to report. Convicted rape rapists were to be executed. Mm. Pretty clear. And uh, memes, don't get your theology from memes, please. Yeah. So the <laughs> polar opposite of what uh, the, the tips and tricks mm. meme would tell you. So. 
Well, we have a, a question that was, it was more of a pondering that someone had left yesterday, and I thought it'd be good to cover these. It might take a little while, because uh, as you said, parables, uh, I think the comment was certain parables, you should be in ministry for at least 30 years before you ever bother to teach on. That's what Chuck <laughs> Smith told us. Uh, well, this one's pretty straightforward. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. Uh, Crystal Coyote wanted to, was wondering what the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great price mean. God giving up everything to save his church. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> the, but the interesting thing is when these things are taught, it's often taught in the sense of, well, you got to give up everything to follow Jesus. You know, you, you, you just have to sell everything and the kingdom of God has to mean more to you than anything else. But, you know, in reality, you could give up everything and still not be saved. You can't buy your way into heaven. Uh, the only one who gave up everything to save us was Jesus. So... Very straightforward. Great. Well, in that case, uh, we'll move on to today's questions. Um, Hotaya, I think I'm saying that correctly. I apologize if I butchered your name, if that is a real name. But uh, Isaiah says if he dies, he will be as a child at 100. Does that mean as a child they will literally be a child still? Uh, example, sea turtles, crush the sea turtle, 100, uh, still, I don't... He gives examples of things <laughs> that age slower. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, when we're talking about that, we're essentially seeing the world restored to Eden-like conditions, and since we aren't given a physiological graph of decay that a glorified body would go through, we don't know if, you know... Adam, by the time he was in his uh, 800s or so, looked like that shriveled up tadpole from SpongeBob going, what? What's with all the yelling? Yeah. But upon the other hand, you're going to say this guy was able to produce offspring enough to the point where the world could be populated. He'd not only have to be able to maintain strength, but virility for a very, very long time. Now, the people who object to this are, of course, going from a lack of information and saying, well, we don't observe that happening today. Great, we don't have Eden-like conditions in a not Eden-like world. Next argument. But if, on the other hand, you're going to go back and go, we don't have any information as far as how the pubescent cycle went as quickly as it does today, or if it was more gradual, like we see back then. Now, I can speculate and say, I'd say generally that we'd hit our peak around the same rate that we do now, around uh, 18 to 20, but we wouldn't break down at the same rate because of the way the world was able to not only function, but that our genomes would be a lot more sturdy than they have become as a result of mutation over time. Yeah. That's it, speculation. When it comes to what we don't know, controversial point here, I don't know. And yeah. so we'll just leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. the reference is in Isaiah chapter 66, we're uh, speaking of the thousand-year reign of Christ. It says, no more shall an infant from there have but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. Uh, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people and my elect will long enjoy the works of their hands. They shall not labor in vain nor bring forth children for trouble for they shall be descendants of those blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. So, you know, and it goes on and it talks about uh, different conditions in the world at that time before they, they call, I'll answer while they're still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. 
dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains. So the idea of Eden-like conditions where you no longer have predation, you no longer have uh, dangerous venomous creatures running around doing their thing. Uh, this is a picture of the Eden-like conditions that will prevail during the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now there's one interesting aspect about the thousand-year reign of Christ. There's going to be regular, normal, mortal people who survive the tribulation period who go into that kingdom and do what normal, regular, mortal people do. That is, they will marry and they will have families during that particular time. Hmm. Uh, the uh, idea of an infant having a few days is just the idea that, uh, that uh, say, sudden infant death syndrome would just be absolutely unheard of uh, during those times. Well, the population uh, will probably boom then, replace yeah, yeah. what was lost during the tribulation. Yeah, absolutely. And not and, with the concerns of desertification or natural disasters like we see today mm -hmm. that make population of that size difficult to manage. So what we see in a sense is a return to something that's always a lightning rod of controversy for skeptics. The vast ages that people lived prior to the flood of Noah. I mean, you've got the all-time record holder in Methuselah who lived to be 969 years old, uh, but they all died eventually. Now, why this, these long lifespans? Well, a couple thoughts. Uh, first of all, these individuals were a lot closer to perfect genetics than we are uh, because of the sin and death principle that dominates in this world. Our genes are constantly mutating, being defective. Uh, these, defect, these defects, these inabilities to fight off diseases, uh, these uh, things that would create uh, genetic anomalies that would be manifest in the next generation uh, start to add up over time. Man's not evolving. In a sense, we are devolving. We are a pretty poor specimen compared to the way we used to be. Mm. But it's interesting that God uh, was in charge of setting these t lifespans because you have these lifespans when you have a world to be populated from two individuals. Well, what do you have to have? You have to have, well, first of all, people living long periods of time and being able to have a lot of kids in order for the species to get traction and take hold. We see that accommodation there. It's interesting that after the flood of Noah, uh, we see, I think, because of the distance from perfect genetics starting to manifest itself, as well as the fact that uh, we've got a little bit more time to play with than say the time from the creation to the flood. Uh, you know, God uh, seemingly has turned down the generator, the, uh, the, the, the guide, the governor, if you will, on the lifespan of a human being. So by the time uh, you get to, uh, you know, Moses writing in, uh, in Psalm 90, the days of man are 70 years or 80 if he has strength. Mm. Um, pretty good estimation, generally speaking, of how long human beings live on the average. So uh, when we see these things happening, we see that God has allowed these things to go on. But when the Lord returns and sets up his kingdom, Eden-like conditions are going to prevail again, and the Lord is uh, full well able to turn back up that governor on uh, the amount of time that a human being can live. So. Isn't that uh, one of the reasons why early on incest was permitted, but for genetic reasons, I mean, this is just, we're supposing. Wasn't uh, was, necessarily permitted, it was the only option. Well, that, yeah, that well, as well, but yeah, it, Genesis chapter it, three it didn't says affect that people. Genesis chapter three said Eve became the mother of all living. 
And then you've got Cain and Abel, and always the famous question from the Scopes Monkey trial, where <laughs> yeah. did Cain get his wife? And Why they, are you they, holding? They say, well, he married a sister or a niece because those were the options. Now, why do we then find, by the time of the writing of the Law of Moses, marrying near relatives is prohibited? Well, once By again, the time of Moses is the answer. Yeah, <laughs> the because genetic, the genetic, genetic uh, Im, Im, implications of marrying mm -hmm. near relatives, because these genetic defects would tend to manifest themselves mm -hmm. in these similar genomes of these, these people. And so God uh, makes an allowance to that. And you just know, to be two steps ahead of the bad skeptic objection, since that's the trend of the broadcast today. <laughs> oh, so you're saying that God can just arbitrarily decide what's right and what's wrong in different ways. No, there's two kinds of laws. There's laws for present and there's laws for universal principles. The law of the present reality, say for example the mixing of fibers, was so that the Israeli priesthood wouldn't sweat during their ministry to God, would be comfortable in a desert environment. That's specific. Or but they the, would be distinct from the other peoples who had no problem with polyester. Yeah, so. but <laughs> then you take that in another principle and note the law of murder, that's universal and is even mentioned specifically all the way back to the time of Noah and even condemned by God during the time of Noah. So note that point. If we're going off of principle-based, Adam knew, and was alive, by the way, for the lifetimes of most of his offspring, to be able to communicate God's standards in a universal sense. But if we're going to say, oh, so you just decide arbitrarily, no, we're told pretty explicitly mm -hmm. what was brought up then as opposed to what's always been. There's a difference. Yeah, the, the ethics when applied are always, uh, not always, but there is a circumstance to where a principle may be applied in a peculiar fashion that may not apply to a different group or a different time, but the moral ethic or principle that it's based on is universal. Yeah. So Definition, for example, application. Not, exactly, not, not, having, not harming your children. Uh, if incest causes harm to the next generation, then don't do that because harming children is bad. <laughs> right. Well, at least we used to think so. Yeah. Uh, you know, just I guess to wrap it up, I, I you know, you talk about uh, where King get his wife, and all of that, and marrying a, a niece or an aunt, uh, or a, a niece or a, a, a sister. Uh, you know, I remember having this conversation with a friend of mine who's an attorney and a uh, very skeptical guy. He'd say, oh, your Bible says that we're all products of incest. That's where Cain got his wife. And I said, well, the only thing I can think of is what you believe. And he went, what do you mean? And I said, well, you believe in mitochondrial Eve, right? That the first homo sapiens was a woman. They can trace our mitochondria and our DNA back to that one individual. Well, where did mitochondrial Eve get her husband? She'd have to marry a subhuman, right? So by your lights, we're all a product of bestiality. That's a good <laughs> and he point. was like, that's not I hadn't really untrue. thought about that. <laughs> so, and it's not it's amazing a when you are as, Yeah, it's amazing what happens when you're as nitpicky critical of someone's non-faith as they are of your faith. Uh, I, I, I gosh, I, I get so frustrated when I hear these you know, atheists lament about theism and monotheistic religions when I said if you were to take your worldview to its logical conclusion we would have utter anarchy we've had it for the last <laughs> century but that's yeah. the point or yes. life under Mao during the cultural mm. revolution which is not mm. very pleasant so anyway. yeah and then they'll Any last thoughts, Sean? well we can go on with that all day but the point stands okay yeah. well good uh, you know speaking of the millennial kingdom that leads us to our next question um, really you kind of addressed it 
briefly, but uh, Isa, 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 uh, ask, uh, justice will be swift during the Millennial Kingdom. Does that mean we get to judge if someone commit murder or if someone gets drunk during the Millennial no. Can sin be committed during the Millennial Kingdom? It will yeah, be, it but will. it will be enforced. Uh, will. If you want to know who's doing the judging, just read Psalm 2. He will strike nations afar off. He'll rebuke them with the word of his mouth. The Lord will be on the earth to enforce his will personally. We won't be, you know, taking people out back ISIS style and <laughs> inflicting uh, our standards on them and some dominion on the planet. If you want to, again, read into this, uh, all the, you know, nuances of Middle Eastern uh, ethics and to just say, oh, this is how that culture would have understood that. No, we're told how that's going mm-hmm. to be enforced, and that the principle in Scripture is that vengeance is mine, I'll repay, mm-hmm. says the Lord. The reason why we don't see God in direct intervention and involvement in the world now is because the world's not being held accountable to the kind of revelation that, say, mm-hmm. for example, people during the time of the Exodus had seen with all those miracles. During the t- time of the millennium, they're not going to have an excuse to say, well, I don't believe in that Jesus stuff. We just go, he's right there. Yeah. Like, yeah. You, we and can get a GPS here, thing. Well, wait a minute. I'll call him over. He'll yeah, settle he'll this. Settle. But are, that's the there point. There are plenty of scriptures indicating that God is being patient. He's long-suffering, waiting for this wicked generation to repent until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, and then judgment will come. But I've often wondered that during the Millennial Kingdom time period, you know, how the parables say some will be given charge of so many cities and the idea that we will judge the angels. Is it a stretch to suggest that we might be sort of like uh, lawgivers or or not necessarily enforcers in terms of executioners or anything like that, but like judges, like the judges time, but that the church or the body of Christ uh, would be part of the system of government during the millennial kingdom. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Even if you're going to make the comparison, and this is the tricky part with that conclusion, you have to note the roles of the judges of Israel were as representatives towards Israel's enemies, acting on behalf of God, where he wasn't manifesting his glory in a direct way. That's distinct from the millennium. Mm -hmm. If you're going to say, well, we'll be like the priesthood, the elders of Israel, to whom a lot of these cases would be brought, and they would bring people out to stone them to death, in the time where you had the glory of God manifested in the tabernacle. That's a better argument, but I'd still caution it because you have more direct revelation of Jesus Christ, a more personally involved revelation of Jesus Christ, and prophecies of his direct involvement and judgment as opposed to ours. I think our leadership is going to be just what the text lays out as his representatives. But if something needs to be done directly, it's not like we'll be reshaping mountains and rivers. We'll just bring the matter Mm. to him like we do in prayer, not out of necessity, but more out of a fellowship mm. kind of deal. Yeah, Jesus did promise his disciples. He said, I surely say to you in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on his throne of his glory, you who followed me will sit on 12 tribes, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 thrones, yeah. So, you know, the idea of administration, the idea of ruling over the affairs of people, uh, will have the uh, distinct advantage of being perfected and glorified at that time. Mm. Uh, but, uh, you know, once again, It'll finally be the Lord's will and the Lord's take that prevails. And because of the most direct statements imaginable, i.e. Mm. Psalm 2, I think when it comes to issues of capital punishment, he can do that. Yeah. It really should quicken the, the body of Christ to be more mindful of the time here. I mean, if, if primary school is how I prepare for junior high, and if junior high prepares me for high school and then college, shouldn't life prepare me for the millennial kingdom in heaven? Should I... 
train myself? Should I involve myself in learning skills with the eternity in mind rather than just getting a job and getting by now? Shouldn't, shouldn't I do things that will help me be a better person in heaven, not just saved, not just knowing some Bible verses and having some devotions, but really thinking through what, what my role and how I can serve God in the kingdom just like I want to serve him now. Is that something that is... That's the whole point of the passage you mentioned about us judging angels, that Mm. we should know how to manage our affairs here because we're going to have a heavenly impact with the same principles. Yeah, it's a warm-up, in a sense. Spring training. When you think of of all that human beings can learn and do, uh, it takes preparing yourself for heaven to another level. Like, gosh, I don't want to just be saved and have a love for God and my neighbor. I, I should do everything I do unto the Lord in in a way that would prepare me for being of good service and useful at any time in, in heaven and eternity. Well, if you believe I, it. Well, I think if you focus <laughs> in on loving God and loving your neighbor, you're going to find that all of that other stuff, as C.S. Lewis would say, thrown in as well. Falls in. Uh, you know, it's just going to be manifested in specific mm. things that you encounter during your day. Mm. But if you have that as your, your compass heading, you're not going to go too far wrong. Right, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's really good stuff. Uh, Mac D wanted to know: um, Does Ephesians one nine ref- referring to God rapturing the church? So is Ephesians one nine a? One, well, it's it's one ten. And and Mac, I've taken a moment and looked at this passage. This is a beautiful section of scripture because what we see in this first part of Ephesians chapter one is how all members of the Trinity get into the act of our salvation, which is the answer to your question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we we see the Father predestining us planning our salvation. We see Jesus providing our salvation and the uh, implications and the ramifications of that. And then we see the Holy Spirit personalizing our salvation, that he's the one that has brought us to himself. Uh, The section that you refer to here in verse 7, it says this, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So here we see the first person mentioned in Ephesians chapter 1 is the Father. Here's where the Son gets in the act, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time. Now, the word dispensation means literally house rules. It means the the purpose, the plan that God has set up, the way his universe is going to run. But notice what it says, you know, he says that uh, made known as mysteries will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in us that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and are on earth in him. So, uh, you know, when we, we look at that, you go, well, is, is that the rapture? Well, certainly the rapture is part of that because for those who are alive prior to the time of the tribulation, that's going to be where they're gathered together with the rest of God's people who have uh, lived down through time, Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. Uh, when uh, we talk about the, the fullness of all of these things, what, it, what it's really emphasizing here is not a particular part of that plan as much as it is saying God does have a plan. Jesus is the one who is going to be implementing this plan and when he follows this plan, it's going to be in complete harmony with the holiness and perfection of mm-hmm. God without fault or failure. I'm not sure that the gathering together of all things in one in him is so much the rapture as much as it's a picture of what life's going to be like in the eternal state. 
how you get there yeah. could be one of two options. Yeah. He comes for us or we go to him. Either way, we're in the same place. That's the focus. But uh, the, remember, the, the culmination of all of this isn't the event of the rapture and then, you know, we live happily ever after. No, we're going to return after the rapture. We're going to have the thousand-year reign of Christ. There's going to be a final rebellion, the white, great white throne judgment. Then there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth where God is going to be so close to us, he's going to be wipe, mm -hmm. able to wipe away every tear from our eyes. Oh, so, that's in the new kingdom after the millennial reign. Right. So we might cry a little bit during the millennial oh, reign. Oh, I'm sure there's going to be tears because there's going to be fallen sinful people there. Mm. Wow. So, well, and God weeps. Yeah. It's not mm. sinful. Yeah. But the fact is we won't weep uncomforted. Yeah. Mm. Well, you already emailed us uh, a question. So if Satan is accusing the brethren before the Father, there's a passage that says that Satan stands before God and Revelation 12, yeah. Accuses yeah. the church, the brethren, day and night. Uh, are the demons also, do they also have access to heaven and Satan? The accuser says, go tempt someone. Uh, also, those currently in heaven, are they advocating for us while Satan accuses us? So a couple of That's reading there. a bit. When we're told in Scripture about our advocate, we go to the top. We don't need angels. We have Jesus Christ, yes, the righteous, is who is the propitiation for our sins. It's First John chapter 2. But if, on the other hand, we're going to go, okay, so if the capital A accuser, that's what Satan's name means, by the way, the adversary, the devil, the uh, enemy. Serpent of old. Yeah, lots of titles, lots of names. Bad guy. Just that's what you need to know. Um, the point of emphasis is that because he's a cherub, an anointed cherub at that, uh, he has more familiarity with that proximity to the presence of God than other heavenly messengers would. Uh, now, that's a bit of an inference on my part, but it's just noting why he'd be found most often there, because formerly, before his fall, that's the role that he played. Now, as far as demons having access to heaven, the answer is yes. In Revelation 12, they're thrown out of there. They'd have to be there to get kicked out. I understand trespass laws. There's a premise to it. But if, on the other hand, you're put in a position where you're wondering, is there like some demonic instruction? There are passages that would suggest that the enemy does have an organized system in opposing the work of God, but that God's thwarting it at every turn. But you end up following a rabbit trail, which ends up talking about so little of what the Bible actually says that it's ultimately ending up being a waste of time. Yeah. So here's what we know. Here's what we're told. When it comes to spiritual warfare, any adversarial spirit, be it the great Satan himself or lesser imps and demons, yeah. to quote, oh, brother, where art thou? Yeah. We're talking about something that's doing its effort to distract or put distance between us and fellowship with Jesus Christ. The response to that, according to First Peter and James, is draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Mm. As far as where they got their orders from, the specific machinations of what end ultimately your stumbling, a la Pilgrim's Progress or uh, the screw tape letters or whatever, is ultimately to amount, it's not our business or concern and shouldn't be something we want to entertain either. I don't want the enemy's will for my life fulfilled. But if on the other hand we're drawing near to God, He'll sort out whatever they're doing, whether it's taking orders or acting on their own. Generally, the passages that people go to and that they have some sort of structure or they need to be in a location because of someone in authority over them, uh, first of all, uh, the only place you really go for that is at the instance of outside of the Gadarenes, where the legion of demons begged not to be sent outside the country. They needed to be there for a reason. Right. The second passage that would go in conflict with they get their orders from Satan, they certainly share his heart. 
But we see in the book of Job, chapters 1 and 2, that Satan's activities on this earth have to be brought by God or allowed or permitted Mm. by God. So home court advantage as far as defense Mm -hmm. is concerned. We know the move before he makes it. Those are the passages that we're told about the enemy's machinations, the wiles of the devil, Ephesians 6, the fiery darts that he throws at us. What we need to focus on is the reasons we have to trust God, faith, that's described as our shield, the reason why we know we have a right relationship with God, described as a breastplate, our righteousness before him, and on it goes. But for the sake of time and clarity, don't give time or don't try to seek clarity on things that just simply haven't been revealed to us. We know that there is a spiritual war going on. We know that God's only allowing it for our sake, not because of his inability or unwillingness to act. The point of emphasis needs to be that. Less focus and less attention on Satan, more focus on Jesus, because that's our Mm -hmm. only contributing role in this fight. Yeah, I do find it very fascinating how patient not only is God with a wicked and perverse human earth, but... uh, the fact that he said, I saw Satan fall, he didn't cause him to fall, he didn't cast him out, he will be bound, but that Satan can just come and go. He's like a prodigal child who says, I'm moving out, but then comes over for dinner all the time and <laughs> takes your food and you know gets in your face and accuses, see how bad your other kids are and you know how nasty they are, and, and that, that, that God is just patiently just, I mean, he almost gives this sense that he's, he's so, his, God, as Jesus demonstrated this humility. He's not reactive. Yeah. Slow he responds. Anger. Yeah, he responds. I love that uh, in like marriage counseling, premarital and such. They say you always, uh, it's always better to respond rather than react. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because that that leads you nowhere. Yeah. So. Well, thank you so much, uh, both of you, and have a great weekend and uh, good services on Sunday. And thank you for tuning yeah. in today. On Sunday, we're going to talk about uh, the three habits of ridiculously joyful people. Oh, in great! Acts chapter thirteen. So. Well, uh, have a great weekend. We'll see you on Monday. Uh, God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.